Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, and I am in the tail end of my spring sojourn to the U.S. I'm leaving a, yeah, still springy. Tuesday afternoon here in New York. And my guest this week is also here in the United States in another place that spring should be springing, but he's told me it's kind of not. We we don't mind. We know that the season's changed and we have to deal with it. So let me get into his introduction. He is all about empowering immigrants everywhere to show love with intention, starting with healthcare. He is the founder and CEO of the healthcare insure tech startup, Flurry, which ensures that the money immigrants send back home goes exactly where they intend while getting quality health care for loved ones in Africa and eliminating money transfer fees. Many words define who he is, but none more so than immigrant. And his story represents the stories of millions of brave, hopeful, and selfless individuals. Many gave up the comfort of familiar spaces to create a new life and future for themselves and those who depend on them. He is all immigrants as his life work is to see his us live more authentically, flourishing and thriving, not just surviving. Samuel Badu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Florence, I really appreciate the invitation. You know, when I first saw the invitation, it had gotten lost somewhere. And, you know, as all good things kind of come, I'd just come back from Ghana and contemplating and thinking about, you know, what that experience was and trying to catch up with the emails. And there was, right, um, the uh, invitation. And, you know, it felt a lot like serendipity. It felt a lot like, you know, reconnecting back with, you know, the, the fountain that replenishes us. And as you rightly put it, also a good opportunity to chase you around the world. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. So let's get started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Mm. I am African. I am from Ghana. I am Ghanaian and Ga, which is my tribe. I am local here today in Columbus, Ohio, which interestingly never feels like leaving home because Columbus happens to be a sister city of Accra, Ghana, where I was born. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it, it keeps me grounded in, in these, you know, two spaces that are very fluid to me. I am also what I call a social entrepreneur or a conscious capitalist mm-hmm. uh, in that my focus and everything that I do essentially is tied to creating impact and creating profit. That really is the underlying commonality of everything that I've done for the last 12 years or so. Okay. Okay. So tell us about how you came to be living and working and playing where you currently are. Hmm. Working, living, and playing. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way. <laughs> interesting you know, choice of words. So I grew up in Ghana. Mm-hmm. And somehow along the way, I ended up in many different places, from Morocco to New York, and at a later point, Ohio. And all of it, you know, was in search of meaning, but meaning that was different at different 
times, right? So I grew up in Ghana and that was natural. I returned to Ghana after having lived in Morocco for five years as an intentional way of being a part of the change that I wanted to see in the country that I'd I'd grown up in. When I left Ghana for the U.S., it was very intentionally because I wanted to change the life that I had. I truly believe that I had the opportunity to do something that God had placed on my heart and I needed to be somewhere where I could be able to do that. And so like many other people who had made the same decision many, many years before me, I left home, moved to New York, and I started making a life for myself there. I randomly met a gentleman on a subway train, as so many of you people get into conversations, and he asked, how do you feel about New York? I hate it. It makes me feel out of place. It's Mm -hmm. fast. It's different. It's not me in that sense. He said, so why don't you move, move to the Midwest? And that was the first time I really had heard about the Midwest and and what it was. Um, And so I started looking and somehow Columbus, Ohio was the first place that came to mind. Mm. And I moved to Columbus, Ohio. That's as simple as it gets. That was it. You just said Columbus works. Yeah. You know, and I later on found out, you know, there's Chicago, there's uh, Minnesota, there's Iowa, there's lots of places in the Midwest that I could have chosen, but I guess Columbus was there for me. Sure, sure, sure. And I guess it's kind of accessible to the East Coast so that it's closer to get to Ghana or to, you know, abroad. So it kind of makes sense. You know, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, so it's not really the Midwest, but we're kind of in that neutral accent zone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so you could yeah. have very well maybe ended up there had you been a different person. Had I been a different person, and to be honest, had I used Google Maps a little bit better. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. So you came in search of changing your life, right? And so mm-hmm. first, tell us about what took you to Morocco and why you left there. So I was a lucky individual that had a UN scholarship announced when I graduated school in 2007. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd gone to a boys' boarding school. I'd grown up in Ghana, and it was the first time I was seeing and hearing about this country, Morocco. I remember when I told my dad about it, Morocco, that's where you're getting a scholarship to? Mm-hmm. You Because know, I did apply for the scholarship, had to go through the interview rounds and all of that. And then they all tried to talk me out of it, right? You know, who do you know who's been to Morocco? What is it even <laughs> there like? Right. It's an all-Muslim country. Are you going to become Muslim? Mm. Like all of these questions were, looking back, we're really, really naive, mm. right? Um, mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up uh, going to Morocco with 40 other individuals in that year group mm-hmm. who had also gotten scholarships. And, you know, that was the beginning of my, you know, connection to Africa beyond just knowing and being born in it. Like my very first intentional uh, thinking about what it is to be African, along with many other Africans like myself. That's what mm-hmm. took me there. And, you know, I, I cannot be more grateful for the series of events that landed me in that country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you spent five years there so that you were there for school? Yes. yes. Okay. And so this was your first international experience as a, a young man. So you were barely out of your teens and, and mm-hmm. living on your own. You did, boarding school often prepares you. So you weren't totally aloof to, to how to live on your own. But that's very interesting. And so what part of Morocco were you in? 
so I lived first in the capital city, Rabat, mm-hmm. you know, and then you use that as basically your connection to all of the different cities, Kenitra, mm-hmm. which is close by, Casablanca, which is a couple of hours away, and mm-hmm. everywhere else, right, that is closed. But I lived in Rabat for a year and then spent the majority of my time there in a city called Ujda, right? Mm-hmm. Ujda is, yes, it's bordered to Algeria, mm. yes, and closer to the desert. It's far more conservative than most of, you know, the other cities, uh, Casablanca and Rabat and, and all the others. But it's also where I, I had, you know, some of the best experiences in my life uh, that I've had. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'd never heard of it. I don't know. I'm going to Morocco for the first time next month. So, oh, nice. Yeah, we're going to Marrakesh, so I'm excited awesome. for that. You see, so everybody kind of hears about uh, Marrakesh, and I spent a lot of time, like, extensively traveling, right, which if you have a lot of years to kill, uh, makes for a really, really good time. Mm-hmm. But Morocco is a very special place. It's a very special place to me. One of my, my daughters was born there mm-hmm. as well. So Ujda is, you know, a very you know, interesting place that maintains a lot of the culture that, mm. that you'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if you do have a chance to travel past Marrakesh into other places, uh, Ujda to Marrakesh is quite far. So I'm going to say that you might not get a chance to do that. Right. Yeah. Uh, but there are other places on your way to, to Marrakesh. I don't know whether you're flying in directly or from Marrakesh, like going to Agadir or any of the other places there. You will be pleasantly surprised. There's so much beauty to see in Morocco. Yeah, I've heard. Um, don't be surprised if I ping you for questions. So <laughs> I'll be counting on it. I still, I still have quite a number of friends there. Good, good, good. So you are a young graduate. You go back to Ghana. And mm-hmm. what was your plan? So um, before I left, right, before I left Morocco, my focus was on social entrepreneurship. And I'd really started to follow the story of uh, Mohamed Yunus, right, who really brought the idea through Green Bank. Mm-hmm. You could advance social well-being and social good while making money doing it. And I really looked at, you know, the country that I'd left and our often over-dependence on the government for almost every initiative. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that when you look at Ghana. And so I really was growing into this idea that if we as a people really focused on the opportunities that entrepreneurship offers, right, there was a way that we could remove ourselves from this dependence on government and create our own future. And I wanted to put that into practice. So myself and a bunch of other young people who had lived in lots of different places in the world all decided we wanted to start a company and we wanted to advance that. That is how I met my friends, Freddie Ray, uh, Jeff Maynou, Vijay, and a bunch of other young and in entrepreneurs in 2012 starting a company called Heal the World, right? Okay. Where we were going to make leather goods, shoes, bracelets, okay. belts, and buckles, and expose what we could do to the world, right? And I was in charge of something called empowerment and business development, right? Which was basically a combination of all of my passions, right? How do we make money as a company and at the same time invigorate a young 
generation to take up and do their own things. And it was a really, really wonderful experience uh, doing that. We kickstarted what became the pop-up culture in, in Ghana. And today you see a lot of things like, you know, the Accra Farmers Market and a bunch mm-hmm. of other pop-ups that you now have. Uh, we started the first pod, uh, pop-ups, you know, between Heal the World and Ketesia and a bunch of other fashion makers in, in Ghana, right? So that was what led to me deciding I wanted to go back to Ghana and mm-hmm. not moving to the U.S. for like a master's degree program or something. Yeah. I remember that. Like that was about the time that I moved to Ghana, 2013. And so, Mm -hmm. yes, I remember seeing the pop-ups and seeing Heal the World. So I I had no idea. I only know you from (laughs) what you're doing now. (laughs) But but yeah, okay, okay, okay. So you you start this transformation in Ghanaian culture, and then you decide, okay, you mentioned there was something placed on your heart. So then how do you then become a person based in the United States? So a lot of things actually happened before then. After Heal the World, I wanted to start a different company. Mm -hmm. So like everybody who travels and comes back, you're all of a sudden, you know, overwhelmed by all this opportunity to create change, right? Yeah. We complain about all of the inefficiencies. We can complain about all of the, uh, the things that are broken and what we wanted to fix and all of that. But at some point in time, you start asking yourself, okay, how am I contributing? Mm -hmm. Right. And so I started a company called Kitchen Express, which, if you think about it, (laughs) uh, was a really, really ridiculous idea. (laughs) I believed in 2013, the thought was, you know, maybe Ghanaians are evolving to this place, right? They're, They're buying into these new ideas and maybe they care about convenience. And who wants to sit in the Makola traffic and like trying to get all of those things right? And Makala, for those of you who have not been to Accra, is the big central market where everything is. So, yeah, outdoor, yeah, open-air market. It, it, it was, like, ridiculous that people want to put themselves through that, right? And forgetting that I'd grown up going through that and, mm-hmm. you know, forgetting everything that I knew that, you know, going out and going to the market was more of a social engagement. It wasn't just, like, going out to go buy stuff, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. people cared a lot more about that. And I'd completely forgotten that. And it taught me one of my first lessons in in entrepreneurship that, you know, all of the best ideas mean nothing compared to market readiness, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding Mm -hmm. your market is far more important than everything else that you can do. If there's a market for a product, even a terrible product will find a place to succeed. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. The best product without a market, it's just not going to do it. So after about six months of having all of these expatriate customers, I realized that I wasn't going to make money fast enough because they're always leaving. Yeah. Right. And so I I killed the company and went on to start another company. Okay. Hello, serial entrepreneur. (laughs) Yeah. You know, God is all about the hustle. Yes. Right. And so the, the two things. I'd continue to disappoint my dad by not getting a formal job, right? I speak six languages. Mm. I could have gone, worked in a bank and all of that. I went to business school. And I was insisting on, you know, doing this entrepreneurship thing while at the same time, you know, trying to juggle so many different things from that standpoint. And so when, you know, we started Porter and Dale, It was taking all of these different lessons and saying, how can we help other entrepreneurs kind of figure out other things out? The issue that we've seen was a lot of entrepreneurs were focused on the mom and pop phase of 
um, you know, their life. It's one person or a couple of people that are basically, you know, trying to make it work. We don't really think about scaling. And, and this is a far more pervasive Ghanaian entrepreneurial issue, you know, that we can talk about at different times. There's a reason why there isn't a Ghanaian unicorn, right? There's a reason why you don't see a lot of Ghanaian companies that have really expanded into other countries. It's something about our fabric and our makeup right, and the way that our society runs. And this was where I was focused on. So I started consulting with a couple of other friends and ended up working with a company called Boating, right, which also happened to me. Like your glasses. Uh, I was going to say, those look like yeah. familiar glasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. they are. So, yes. you know, I, I still have like one of the very uh, few original Boatings. So in 2013, I started working with Boating and, and really saw this opportunity for me to be able to do something that, you know, I, I think that I had a limit or a cap trying to do in Ghana, right? Working to really build and scale businesses. And last year I was in New York for the ninth anniversary of voting, right? In in Nostrum and seeing what all of those early years had later on culminated into. And so I made the decision in 2014 that after working with all of these Ghanaian brands, I didn't want to be a big fish in a small pond. Mm. And I wanted to really open up the challenge, but also open up the opportunity to be successful and to create impact, right? And that's when that's when my mindset started to shift. So in September of 20, 2014, I decided I was going to leave, right? At the end of September, I packed up my stuff. And, you know, even though I had a two-way ticket, deep down inside me, I knew I wasn't coming back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it's that it's that point where you get to and you're like, you know, something is going to change. It's either I'm going to change or things about me are going to change. Mm. And so I moved to New York. That's basically, you know, how all of those things kind of led to you're going to be American someday. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. 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 So let me take a little bit of a, a global journey and ask you to tell us about your global speak before we talk more about what you're doing and, and how you landed in the U.S. So we want to hear what you hear. I ask my guests to share a word, phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak. Hmm. So I'll say this word isn't local to, you know, where I am today, which mm-hmm. is uh, Columbus, Ohio, but it's local to, you know, the place I call home, which is Ghana. Sure. Um, and it's it's the word sankofa, right? Sankofa. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sankofa means you know, go back and get what it is that you left, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why this word resonates with a lot is because I speak to thousands of immigrants, right? Thousands. Even before I started the company, I had interviewed four hundred people to try to understand the experiences and the challenges that they faced. One of the things that we talk about often is the mindset that you assume just before you leave home and when you arrive. In those first few months, you're inundated with a world that is different. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is very, very easy to become spiteful of your beginnings, to look down on where you left. And often it's very, very easy to fall into the law that what I left was no good, 
And I didn't really understand this until I started to grow up here. I started to do other things here. And I realized that, you know, the thing that we all as immigrants carry with us is perspective. It's not it's not a loss. It's not a burden. It's, it's perspective. Mm-hmm. We get to see the world that we're experiencing in a very new way. Mm-hmm. And everything in our past, everything that we left behind, at some point in time, will become the foundation for your own self-discovery and meaning. Today, I am the person that I am and sit in the rooms that I sit and interact and meet with the people that I meet primarily because I am very aware of who I am, where I came from, what I've done, what I've experienced, and what I know from there, right? And as I move forward and make decisions, I continuously call on my experiences. They motivate me. They influence my thoughts around the world. And in my special case, it is these same experiences about my journey, being in Morocco and witnessing firsthand the difficulties of immigrants who are trying to get to Europe and dying in the deserts and the challenges that they face. These are the things that influence the choices around what we want to build and who we're serving and how we stay true to that journey. And so we come back to the word Sankofa, that no matter where you've placed those things that you started out with, at some point in time in your life, you will go back to it. Mm-hmm. And the, the full sentence, right, Sankofa Yenchi, going back to pick the things that you left behind is not a faux pas, it's not a mistake, it's not a detraction, it's actually an intentional way of growing into yourself. And, and that's what has become a part of, you know, my language, my set of things that I lean on as I navigate this global world. Mm, I love it. I like that. That's a wonderful global speak. I like it. So speaking of, let's talk about Flurry. Mm. So you moved to the U.S., you were in New York, then you moved to Columbus, and then it took you a few years to decide on this startup. So tell us about this business and 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 how it is placing you in your your best self to date. You know, I I am a big believer in in fate and destiny and the fact that we're all on a journey. I'm very spiritual, not religious, but we're all on a, all on a journey to being or, or to basically achieving what is needed of us. And very recently. Mm-hmm. I met a gentleman, Mark Weber, uh, who is head of AI at the IBM AI Research Lab at MIT. And Mark gave a speech, not surprisingly, to a bunch of you know other African entrepreneurs in the room and talked about the message that his mother had left him with, right? And continuously, I, I reflect over that a lot, that her wish for him was not to discover riches or to become successful, but her wish for him was to find the intersection where his talents and what the world needs meet. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, I think of you know my own journey over the last you know seven to eight years and what they've been. Right, so many more things that have happened. This is my second com- uh, company in the U.S. Mm-hmm. as a co-founder of another, and have been in some early stage startups as well. All of those experiences were meant to get me to a place where I could uniquely be of influence to a group of people who 
largely having had advocates. And so I tell people a lot that I am one of the few immigrants who didn't come here for school, who didn't come here on a scholarship, who didn't come here with relatives, right, or with uh, a green card lottery visa. I came here as a hustler. I was undocumented. I'm no different from a lot of the people that you know, we see and protest against and are at the border. I'm, I'm really no different. And it didn't matter what my life before looked like. When you're an alien and undocumented, you're essentially a nobody. You don't exist in the formal system. Right. And this is where my greatest responsibility and where my greatest need in the world is. I represent a voice for a number of immigrants who cannot self-advocate for mm. lots of different reasons, mm-hmm. millions mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. And so my experiences and knowledge and talents and what I had learned brought me to this same point where I got to a point where in February of 2020, my grandmother had gone in sick. You know, mm-hmm. prior to that, all we do, like millions of other people, is just send money back home. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that I was contemplating, you know, this is someone I'm close with. I lived with, right? I can't get her to the hospital. I can't force her to take herself to the hospital. My sister is working. My dad is, is, is he was battling with his own illnesses. And this person who should have no worries, right, because we all send money to her, decides that she's going to take the route of going to see the, the herbal healer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, it sounds like, why would someone do that? But you also kind of take several steps away and you think about it. It's because it's very, very difficult to navigate care as, as an 86-year-old trying to go to Kalibu and going to form a long line, right, mm-hmm. and not having anyone really hold your hand, take you there. Yeah. And you're trying to avoid that inconvenience. Yeah. And so when someone says, oh, I have this herbal treatment that will get you well in days, you, you barely question it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's almost the thing that, eases all of the things that you're afraid of, right? And so my grandmother ended up passing away and I struggled with it for a long time because it just isn't the kind of thing that happens, right? You don't just die because you can't go to a hospital right? because you don't have money and all of that. And it was the first time I really reckoned with the fact that just because you have money and just because you can send money to someone doesn't solve any of the problems that they face. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's the reason why remittances have been so cyclical, because in the large majority of the cases, all we're doing is throwing money at situations that fundamentally never get resolved or changed. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it started this search for how can this be better? And everyone else that I know is going through the exact same thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. How is it that for decades we've been doing this almost like a herd and nobody is changing it? Right. Right. And so the idea for Flurry really came around the need for one, control, the need for visibility, mm-hmm. the need for transparency in the way that the funds that we send back home are used. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the reason why we started with healthcare as the first conditional remittance case that we wanted to solve was one, because I'd lost my grandmother due to a healthcare condition and a broken infrastructure, right. but also because 
as you will realize, the number one excuse anybody can give you that gets you to send money, oh, my mommy, Ari, grandma is feeling sick. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to go to the hospital. The mm-hmm. pharmacy said this, like, because it's always so life and death, exactly. you will almost always give the money. Yeah, yeah. And there's also this yeah. sense of guilt, you know, like, I know that my parents, particularly my mother, it was always, I'm here and I have all of this. They don't have it. So just, I, I have to do it. I have to do it. And we, I have a similar story last year. One of my cousins mm-hmm. passed because she went to the herbal doctor. My mother's a nurse. She told her very explicitly, please go just get a cast. She passed from a broken leg because it was infected. It got infected because she went to the herbal doctor who packed it and did whatever. And so I can really understand and, and, and empathize with, with your situation. And I'm, I'm excited to understand more about how that is evolving into this yeah. business model. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, I spoke to hundreds of people before I started, right? And you hear all of these stories that come out of it. <laughs> you know, one person, and I'm in the military, right? So I, I'm a reservist. That's my part-time commitment. There's another soldier um, out of Texas, right, who was deployed, and for the entire time that he was gone, his family kept asking him for money for his mother, who apparently was in the hospital. Mm. And so he diligently continues to send this money. Dude comes back and says, well, the first thing I, I need to do is go see my mother. Mm-hmm. Ends up getting to Nigeria and realizes his mother has been dead for a while. His mother has been dead all this while. Oh. His family had figured out that the best way to get money out of this guy oh. in a way that they had never gotten was to use healthcare and his mother, mm-hmm. right, to get mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. This guy does, no longer has a relationship with his family because of this level of exploitation. Yeah. And we see it on so many levels. So many. Right, on so many levels. And and for me, that was the starting point for if this is happening and we don't have the tools to be able to resolve it and we're already sending the money, could we do this better? Mm-hmm. Right. And so the, the 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 business of Flary, the way it started was focus on one product to start, right? And we started with Flary Health. Mm-hmm. Very, very simple. There's a group of people who, for many reasons, feel and have a connection to the people that they've left behind. And there happens to be a whole lot of them, 48 million just documented in the U.S., right? But so many more millions of immigrants around the world who do this on every monthly basis, Yeah. right? And so if they're sending money, and a lot of the times they're sending money to ensure that folks back home have access to good quality healthcare, then is it possible for us to organize the healthcare and make it possible for these guys to directly pay for it in a way that is transparent, Mm -hmm. in a way that is accountable and shows where the care is coming from Mm -hmm. and where the money is going to, Mm -hmm. and shows what the quality of the service is and holds someone accountable to delivering that service, right? Could it be that it serves them better in allowing them to be able to, one, budget, two, get peace of mind in knowing that someone has that assured care, and three, allows them to be able to know that they will be taken care of back home. Mm -hmm. 
And that's where we started. And -hmm. it took us a number of months to get our first partners, Nationwide Medical, you know, Glyco in Ghana, Premier, KK, to come on board and say, hey, we have this idea for the diaspora. Are you willing to throw in a year of figuring this out, right? And in February of, of this year, we just did the first full cycle of utilization and underwriting and claims to actually see what the impact was, right? And that has been really, really interesting. And so we launched a pilot in Ghana to essentially create a business out of this idea. And at some point in time, we had the opportunity to go to Nigeria Mm -hmm. and then launch the pilot in Nigeria. And it really, really took off there, right? Um, And so last year, we, we had given access to about 360 people who now have formalized healthcare in a way that they never had before, sponsored by their families in the U.S. and a few outliers in Europe and Finland and the rest. And it really showed us a lot, right? So that's kind of how the business started and how it started to take hold. And, And there's been a lot that, you know, we've learned that we can dig into as well. Sure, sure, sure. So, so for someone who's looking to buy this policy for a family member, what what's the process? How does it work for the connection, and and how how do they you interact with the physicians and with the the insurers? So, I'll tell you a little about you know how it goes today with the pilot and what's also coming up, right? So, like you rightly said, this is evolving because as you get deeper into solving the problem, you discover other problems. And you learn what needs to change. So we started out in Ghana, Nigeria, working with health insurance companies, right? And what we had created with Flary was essentially a membership, right? Where global migrants could essentially sign up to this platform and would have the ability to pay for healthcare on behalf of their families back home, right? And it was only health insurance. But what we've realized in the last year is people have so many different health needs. Also, health insurance, as great as it is here uh, in the West, health insurance penetration on the continent is really, really low, which means that it actually does not reach a lot of people. And so with all of that said, one, we knew that we had to spread coverage to more people. Two, we knew that we also had to be able to cover more use cases than just supporting with insurance. And we had to look at the needs of people, even in areas where they didn't have formal healthcare structures. Right. And so what Flurry today is becoming, and this is being said here for the first time, what we're evolving into is a health exchange, mm. uh, which is different from where we started from. Mm-hmm. What we're doing now is opening up this platform to aggregate providers of care Mm -hmm. on the continent Mm -hmm. and the services of care across multiple categories of care. Mm -hmm. So in a few weeks, what's going to be launched is not just comprehensive care or insurance-backed care, but you're now going to have access to telehealth for Mm. members who live in rural areas where they don't have access to the same healthcare facilities. So they could speak to a doctor who is in Lusaka or in Lagos, 
rather than where they live, where there's no qualified dietitian. Specialist, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We're also introducing things like home health care, mm-hmm. right, to provide convenience for people who need health care but cannot go to the hospital, especially in times like COVID yeah. um, and the rest, right. Elderly care, which is a big part of what people struggle with, mm-hmm. right. So we're partnering with a few providers to actually tackle geriatric care, mm-hmm. where thankfully in Ghana and Nigeria, we can now actually place a healthcare, a living aid oh, right, with a relative, right, yeah. who will take care of them. And these are not even insane amounts of money to pay, mm-hmm. right? But there's so many people that are solving the healthcare problem. And what we're doing is bringing them together in a unified way to allow the diaspora to actually be able to take action and feel like they can get some level of accountability, right? We're introducing mental health for the first time. And one of the interesting parts is today we talk about how important mental health is, but formalized mental health and access to care has been very, very limited. Most people wonder, you know, I have a cousin back home and he's always talking to himself and there's so much, and you really don't know how to support them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're partnering with companies like Nguvu Health, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a Nigerian uh, startup that's focused on making mental health care accessible throughout Africa and a few Mm -hmm. others that we're working with. Emergency response. I can tell you a very sad part of my experience the last year is losing three of our beneficiaries in ways that could have been prevented. Mm. Access to ambulances are so difficult that even when someone has a healthcare plan, right, you're depending on a hospital dispatching Mm -hmm. the same one ambulance that is being dispatched to so many other people, Mm -hmm. right? And this has created a need to be able to go beyond what these companies can provide to what we can do to actually bring it in. So we partnered with a company called Emergency Response Africa, right, Uh, which is run by two women, a Ghanaian and a Nigerian, and doing amazing work to actually bring private emergency response care and most people just think of it as an ambulance, but we're talking paramedic training. Right, right? exactly. Um, yeah. Your mm-hmm. first aid kits, first and making sure mm-hmm. your family is receiving one, and also creating an emergency number that you can now actually subscribe your family back home for as little as $6 a month mm. so that they're on a priority list. If they ever need emergency response anywhere, they simply call that number, an ambulance is sent, a paramedic leaves on a motorcycle first to go get them. And so across all of these different categories of care, Flurry is bringing these different providers across Africa together. And the diaspora now knows that I don't really have to go send money and hope that Uncle Kojo takes it to grandma. I can simply find the care that I need either in the moment or ahead of time and know that my family is covered. And that's what the process is becoming. You simply get onto Flurry, you sign up for a membership, you're gonna see immediately, answer a few questions about where your loved one is, uh, what categories of care you're interested in. You will see all of the different plans from the different providers. You can select the plan or the, the collection of plans that you wanna have for them, mm-hmm. whether it's a mental mm-hmm. health cover, emergency response, and a comprehensive care plan, you put that together and you know that, hey, this is what I'm doing for my family. I spend $40, $60 a month, and I know that they have access to care, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you check out and you're done. What we do on the other hand is we focus on two things to create this experience. One, 
assigning the family care representative to your to your family. So the family care representative is like this friend, right? We create a chat, which is a family chat, and it has mm-hmm. you, the sponsor, mm-hmm. and it has the beneficiary, mm-hmm. right? And it puts you all in the same group chat, and you just start to have conversations. What mm-hmm. are the healthcare goals that you want your mom to have? The biggest reason why we started this, and we didn't have it before, we have to learn this, right? Most people don't have a basis for conversations around yeah. like healthcare and yeah. participating in the lives of their families. Yeah. Essentially, the diaspora has become like a credit card. Yeah. It's all transactional. Mm-hmm. I call out to uh, Auntie Barbara every mm-hmm. time I need money, but Auntie Barbara really doesn't know whether I'm going to school whether I'm doing well in school, whether I went to the hospital with the money, what was the outcome? And what we're doing is facilitating these deeper conversations, which for a lot of people is so strange. I'm telling you, like the kind of things that have come out of this, right, is is so different. And then the second part outside of the family care representative Mm -hmm. is what we call health navigation. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., you have things like cancer guardian right? Mm-hmm. Or you'd have heard of quantum health. Mm-hmm. All they do is advocacy, yeah. right? Advocating for better care. And we really haven't thought of that in the sense of like Africa and the way we navigate care, mm-hmm. right? And so when you look at that, what your health navigator does is this person is a public health worker or a qualified doctor whose responsibility is be a first point of contact. Right. And we're going to build on the services of navigation. We want to get to a world where when your mom needs to go to the hospital, we're booking that appointment for your mom. That we want to be able to pick her up or arrange with a taxi to get her and take her to the appointment. If she needs us to be in the appointment, we will be there, take notes and follow up with you and let you know that, hey, the doctor said mom's blood sugar is going up. She needs to change the way she eats. Right. We can appoint a nutritionist or a dietitian to help her do that. We want to change the way that preventative care is seen by our families back home and mm-hmm. move them closer to better health outcomes. Mm-hmm. That is where the value for Flurry Health really is. I love it's it. not in the purchase. It's how do we help them take advantage of this health plan that they have such that they are better off than they started and that they continue to be better off in the years to come. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Uh, everything you're saying is like so spot on. And I, I know that this is the right price point, the right types of like that you just mentioned, the family care representative and the on the ground care. Like that was always in my mind as I was doing research, thinking about, OK, well, you know, it's easy to put it all in the, the cloud. But what yeah. is happening on the ground? Because we need yeah. that that personal bridge. And I, I'm really glad that that you have that going on. So how have you funded Flurry to date? So Flurry is venture funded. So okay. we have uh, a number of investors, but that that is not really the, the big part of the way I think about our fundraising journey. Mm. Uh, and we're currently going through another fundraising round right now. Okay. Five of my very first customers came together to contribute $25,000 to our very first fundraising round. Mm. And since then they have done so a number of other times. And for me, that tells the deeper story of why Flurry needs to exist. Mm. Because what we're solving is a big enough problem that it moves people to not just put their families on these care plans, 
but to also invest in a company that ensures that their family has access to healthcare. And and that is the narrative about, you know, our fundraising that's that's really, really special for me. But we have traditional uh, venture capitalists, we have angel investors, and we've done two rounds. Um, we also did the Textiles Accelerator program, mm-hmm. right? um, and, and that's how we've funded this. Got it. Got it. So let me ask you this. This is now the time for my mindset hack. So everything you're talking about is about mindset. It's about changing and evolving and thinking new new ways of doing other things. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you practice, one that you know of, or one that you can imagine. Huh, interesting. Entrepreneurs are the worst at taking their own advice. So that's yeah. kind of it. <laughs> You know, as great as these things might sound and that we know them, the reality is we all have, you know, these bouts of depression, difficulty, uh, challenges Mm -hmm. that really put those things into question. So the first one that I'll say is uh, cell talk, Mm. right? Nobody might tell you this, but we do a lot of cell talk. Before (laughs) I go into a meeting or speak to investors, right, Mm -hmm. I need to believe myself first. And it's really, really challenging, especially because I have no co-founders, right? And so we have a team of 13 and we have a very great relationship, but there are things that, you know, you're going to go through that I go through that feel deeply personal. And a lot of the time, I don't have a lot of people to transfer that onto. So I talk to myself a lot Mm -hmm. about, you know, what is it that I'm trying to convey? What am I trying to get out of this? How do I want this to be perceived? Am I really thinking through this? But also it's about really revving yourself up. Mm-hmm. You can do this. This is what you thought about. This is what you planned is going to come to fruition. There's a lot of that. So that's that's mindset hack to get yourself constantly like tuned. Yeah. Um, so you're not letting that negative voice really take a hold of you. Sure, sure, sure. I like that. Um, and I agree as an entrepreneur, yeah, it is often... Yeah, your own pep, like pepping yourself up. You got to get that internal pep rally doing the cheers um, for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so uh, this has been, it's gone so fast. I love this conversation. And so I know we're getting close to the time when we have to move on to the next. So before, and I'd love to have you back because the thing that you're doing is in the Solutionscape space that I am facilitating more conversations about and we'll be having panels that are really kind of focusing on the drill down of what exactly it is to create solutions that are sustainable and um, scalable, particularly in Africa. So before we sign off, I want to ask who is Sam, who is not the entrepreneur, who is not self-talking himself, who is just the man who is leisurely living his life. So I like to ask the question, are you a reader, a watcher, or a listener? And what are some of your favorite reads, watches, or listens? Um, so I am a listener. Okay. Right. Tim Ferriss is a big one. Okay. Right. Uh, Brene Brown is mm-hmm. is an honor. Believe it or not, Esther Perel. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like her, too. Uh, yeah. Right. And um, a bunch of other podcasts that help in dissecting uh, topics that I might have you know, little to no knowledge about or mm-hmm. want to gain expertise in. And it's also because, you know, listening and doing work is like the only level of multitasking that I can manage. Okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> I get it. Absolutely. Ed. So we'll we'll have that in our show notes, folks. So we'll know a little bit more about what Sam is listening to. And uh, and also we have actually some very rich show notes as usual. So definitely check out the show notes after the conversation. So Sam, do you have any last words to share with our listeners today? I always feel like last words bring you closer to your death one way or oh, the no. other. <laughs> <laughs> no, then let's call it parting thoughts for the moment. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I think for every one of us that's out discovering ourselves, living our true meaning, getting closer to the impact of the world that we want to see, we will inevitably question our place in this big world, especially when there are huge global events that seem to like shake the foundation of our own individual places um, in this. And the thing that I try to hold on to is that when we look around us and when we speak to those around us, we don't really need to go far and ask, you know, what is our place in these people's lives, right? By understanding our place in the lives that are around us, directly around us, we understand our place in the bigger world. Because just like you started this show on the impact that we have, whether far or wide or near and small, is still impact. And impact ripples, which means that we don't necessarily need to understand the extent of the ripple. We only need to know that we can start the first ripple. And nature takes care of the rest. I think those are you know, the words that you know, I try to remember as we think of fundraising rounds and size of rounds and investments and all of that. And at the end of the day, the only impact that really matters is the ones that we're having in the lives of the people who are around us and everything else will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. So I wish you so much more success and I'll be looking to sign up as many people as I can and get the word out to all my my peers who have family in Ghana, in Nigeria, in South Africa, across the continent to um, to support Blary. I love it. All right, Global Citizens, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with new episodes at www.globalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please do comment, like, share, give us a review. It helps people find the content, find the podcast. And until next time, bye for now. Bye.